The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In uh, 2007, this movie called Into the Wild came out. And it was uh, a portrayal of the true story of this guy named Chris McCandless, uh, who two years after graduating with honors from Emory University, um, decided to just kind of do something crazy. And he essentially donated or gave away all of his worldly possessions. And he left civilization to live in the wild. Uh, and McCandless's journey began in Alaska, more specifically in Denali National Park, where he set up a home inside of this abandoned bus. And he broke off all contact from, with his friends and family, and in fact, the rest of the world. And by going into the wilderness, McCandless wanted to discover what was truly, uh, we shouldn't be on that slide yet, yeah, uh, wanted to discover what was truly essential in life. Okay, that's what his goal was, was what is life all about? Um, he wanted to know what it was like to live life without a safety net. And so in that wilderness, McCandless learns how to hunt for his food. And so he spends his days hunting and gathering and reading books and then journaling. And so from Alaska, McCandless would end up going to all kinds of places over the next two years, to Nevada and then to Northern California and then South Dakota. And then eventually he would work his way back to Alaska. And after months there in Alaska, McCandless comes to the realization that he just simply doesn't have the skills that he needs to survive in the wilderness. But he also begins to make some more important discoveries about himself and about his life because he comes to probably the most profound and most important realization is that what is truly essential in life is a loving community, loving others, and being in community with family and friends. And so in a journal dated July 24th, 1992, McCandless wrote, Happiness is only real when shared. I was wrong. I think it is time for me to return home, to right the wrongs. Did my family deserve to be torn from my life so harshly? What did Corrine, his sister, do to have an emptiness in her life where I should have been? Though he had his shortcomings, did my father, uh, I think the implication being, deserve this as well? All of this thinking saddens me. And so with this new insight, McCandless decides to leave the wilderness finally after two years and head back home. But the problem is this discovery comes just a little too late because the river that he had crossed in the winter, which was frozen, has now thawed and has become a mighty rushing river that he cannot cross. He would die if he attempted it, he realizes. And so McCandless is reduced for months to foraging for plants and roots. And he slowly begins to starve to death in that wilderness. 
And then he makes the critical error of starting to consume these plants that he doesn't realize are poisonous. And so over time, this food that he's eating is slowly killing him, poisoning his body to the point where he cannot even walk anymore. In his final journal entry, dated August 18th, McCandless writes, This may be my last entry. I cannot move. I have not eaten in three days and am trapped in my sleeping bag due to weakness. Hopefully my family is doing well and my death does not pain them too much. Moose hunters would find McCandless's body almost three weeks later, curled up in his sleeping bag inside of this bus. And a note was found taped on the door of that bus that basically said, attention, possible visitors, SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. Thank you, Chris McCandless. Obviously, that note was never read by anyone who could rescue him, and he passed away in Denali. As the story of Chris McCandless illustrates, the wilderness can be a place of amazing beauty and inspiration, but it can also be a place of great danger. And so it's curious why God would send so many of his people to a place of danger, but it's clear and undeniable that the Bible records a strong tradition of God taking the very people that he wanted to use and that he loved and sending them into the wilderness. Men like Abraham, Moses, and Elijah, and even God's own son, Jesus, would end up spending significant times in the wilderness. Anyone, basically, that God wanted to use in any kind of significant way, it seems, he sends into the wilderness, and David was no exception to this rule. You guys know the story as we've been unpacking over these last few weeks here. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel as a youth, as a shepherd boy. And then it's not long after that he he would prove himself on the field of battle and defeat the giant Goliath and become Israel's champion. And if the story goes as we would expect, the next chapter in his life should be him assuming the throne. But that is, in fact, not what happens. Instead, what God does is he thrusts his servant into this protracted season of living in the wilderness. A long season of testing and training to become a man who would be fit to be the king. In other words, God says, you're not ready yet to be the king. I'm going to send you into the wilderness to learn how to be king. It's interesting. David does not choose the wilderness. You got to understand that. He doesn't go voluntarily. He is pushed into the wilderness. He is chased into the wilderness. There will be 15 stories that occur in this wilderness period of David's life. And when you read those stories, 
what you begin to discover is that these are some of the most important years of David's life. And based on the psalms that David wrote in that wilderness, in fact, most of the psalms that David would write occurred in this period in the wilderness, it seems. And from those psalms, what you discover is that this period in David's life seems to be among his most treasured days of his life when he really discovered God and discovered who he is. Well, why do we need the wilderness? I think it's because of this. We thrive on familiarity and security. All of us want a predictable life where everything is under our control. But here's the thing. You cannot control the wilderness. It is beyond our control. That is why the wilderness becomes a place of testing where almost (coughs) every source of comfort and security is stripped away from you, forcing you to depend on God alone. But I also want to say this. The wilderness can also be an incredible place of clarity and simplicity where life stripped bare to its essence forces you to see what is really essential about your life. Of course, these men that are listed up here actually spent literal time in a literal wilderness. But there are also other men in the Bible like Joseph and Job and the Apostle Paul, who would spend a period in what we could call a metaphorical wilderness. For Joseph, his wilderness years were the fact that his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And so for years, he lived as a slave in a foreign country. You could call that his wilderness. For Job, it was the loss of his children, his possessions, and even his health. And not only that, but on top of that, the constant attack on his character by his friends. That was Job's wilderness. For the Apostle Paul, it would be three years in the Arabian Peninsula, away from all other believers, basically, where he would have to spend time alone right after his conversion. And I want to say this, we ourselves most likely will never spend any extended time in a literal wilderness because let's be honest here, we live in America, right? Um, And sure, you can vacation at one of the national parks, but let's be honest here, I bet you you will still go poop in a flush toilet there, okay? Um, But I want to argue that probably in all of our lives, God will bring us through seasons of wilderness, whether you like it or not. Maybe it may arise from a major conflict or some other relational difficulties in your life. Maybe it would be the loss of a loved one that you leaned on so heavily or a community from which you had to part ways that gave you a sense of security and identity. Maybe it might become a major health crisis Maybe it will be the death of a dream. I don't know where your wilderness will come to you. But I want to say this. If you want to grow, you need the wilderness. None of us want the wilderness, but we need the wilderness. Eugene Peterson writes, when we're in the wilderness, we aren't in control. We have no assignment, no appointments to keep. Stay alert, stay alive, that's it. 
When we're in the wilderness, we commonly feel our lives simplifying and deepening. But there is also something frightening about wilderness. The wild, while it may be breathtakingly beautiful, is also dangerously unpredictable. The wilderness has a hundred different ways to kill us. This is the wilderness that David enters, both beautiful and dangerous. He will see, hear, and experience things in the wilderness that can be seen, heard, and experienced nowhere else. And so as I begin my message this morning, I want to begin by asking you that question. Have you experienced the season of wilderness in your own life? Have you? Because if you haven't, I guarantee you they will come one day. And how will you be prepared to handle that time in the wilderness? What I want to do in this message is basically give you, I said there are 15 wilderness stories in 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at seven of them this morning, okay? And the way that I'm going to do it is I'm just going to give you snapshots of the first six. Each one of these six stories could be a message all by itself, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you a real cursory look at each story because I want to try to get out of those six stories a big picture of what David experienced in the wilderness and see what he had to suffer, everything that he went through in that wilderness. And then we're going to focus a little bit more in detail on that last story when he goes to a place called En Gedi. And we're going to see in that place called En Gedi how David learned the lessons of the wilderness that God was teaching him. So let's begin. David's wilderness journey begins in a place called Nob. Now, it's actually more like a resting place, a rest stop to his real destination, which we're going to get to in a moment. Now, Nob is between Ramah and Bethlehem. Bethlehem being David's hometown and Ramah being where the prophet Samuel lived, where David sought refuge when at first he realized Saul was trying to kill him. So he works his way down to Nob. And it says in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 2, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now here's the the reality of the situation is, David is flat out lying here. And what we're going to discover is during David's year in the wilderness, he lies repeatedly, okay? He's going to keep lying, and the lies get bigger. And there tends to be so much focus on this. Was this right of David to lie like this? Did God justify this? And I'm going to argue that that's kind of missing the point. If you remember from the early messages that we, I was giving about David, we're not lifting David up as a paragon of moral virtue, okay? The whole point of studying the life of David is, look at what a great saint David was. Let's all emulate him. He is human just like us, and he sins just like us, and he makes a lot of mistakes. And let's be honest here. When you're in crisis mode and you feel the word crashing down on you, lying becomes one of the easiest ways to try to dig yourself out of a hole, isn't it? 
And I think that's what David discovered as well. So he doesn't know what to say to Ahimelech, the priest, and so he makes up a story because he's desperate. He's running for his life from Saul, and in his desperation, he uses deception. And so he says, I'm starving. Do you have any bread? I, 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 my business for the king is so urgent. I don't have a weapon. I don't have any food. Do you have either of those or both? And Ahimelech says, you know, we don't, I don't have any bread for you, but only the ceremonial bread in the tabernacle. You can have that if you and your men have not been with women. And David says, oh, we haven't been with women. Give us the bread. So he takes the ceremonial bread. And then he says, do you have a weapon? And basically, um, Ahimelech says, um, yeah, so if you look at verse 7, it says this. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, what Hebrew scholars tell us that, that saying uh, chief of Saul's herdsmen is probably a mistranslation. A better way to understand it is saying that he was basically Saul's chief bodyguard. Okay? Now that detail is going to become really critical a little later on in our story. But then this exchange happens between David and Ahimelech, the, the priest, in verses 8 to 9. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And so he takes the sword of Goliath, the giant that he slayed. The only thing I want to point out here before we move on is that when David killed Goliath, he was this little shepherd boy. Now we see him basically a grown man, a battle-hardened soldier, a warrior, who basically takes Goliath's sword as his own. We see how much David has changed in these few years. Well, now we get to the next point in the journey. David travels from Nob to Gath, which is actually a Philistine city. And it happens to be Goliath's hometown. The point I want to make about this part of David's journey is how absolutely desperate David is to try to find security in a Philistine city. What that is saying is that David realizes there is nowhere safe for me in all of Israel. I don't know who is on my side or who is on Saul's side. I don't know where Saul's spies are located. And so crazy enough, David goes to the Philistines to try to find safety, but as, so we read in verse 11 to 12 in chapter 21, and the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David realizes that he's been recognized. And he realizes he has a reputation there in Gath. And his reputation is of a Philistine killer. (laughs) And so thinking fast on his feet, David conjures up another deception. 
Verses 13 to 15, it says this. So he changed this behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen <laughs> that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So, so basically David acts like an insane person. And he's letting his drool run down his beard and he's scribbling graffiti on the walls. And it seems to work. And the king says, what happened to this guy? Why do I want him here? Why did you bring him to me? Get him out of my presence. Robert Alter, Old Testament professor, uh, scholar, says this. Thus David had succeeded in making himself so revolting that he arouses in Achish a primitive revulsion from the spectacle of the insane so that the king simply wants to get David out of sight rather than have him killed. This is an extraordinary moment in the story of the founding king of Israel. David, the glamorous young hero of the preceding episodes, is prepared to do whatever is necessary in order to survive, even if it means making himself appear to be the most repulsive of humankind. And I ask, what do you even do with a story like this, right? What is the moral lesson here? When cornered, act like a crazy person, because what would David do, right? Listen, we read these kind of stories and we scratch our heads and go, I don't even get this. Why is this in the Bible? And what is the lesson here? And we can often focus on the wrong things. It's not so much, is it morally right or wrong to feign insanity to save your life? That's not the issue here. Um, First Samuel shows us what's happening on the outside in David's life. But what I love is that the Psalms that David writes give us access to what's happening on the inside during these chapters of his life. And what we're told is in Psalm 34 is that this is the psalm that David wrote, as it says there, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And it says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see, we can spend endless time debating about the morality of David's actions, and I don't think there's any need to do that. 
This is just David in extremis, not knowing what to do. And so he just conjures us a scheme to act like an insane person. But I think the psalm captures the heart of David, which is the important part of the story, is saying, I don't know. I don't, maybe even if you were to corner David and go, was that right for you to do that? David would go, I don't know, but I was just running for my life. It's all I knew to do in that moment. But then in David's cry, he says, but what I can testify honestly to you is this. In that moment in Gath, when Achish was debating whether to kill me or not, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord. And I sought refuge in him. And he rescued me. He rescued me. David doesn't cite his scheme as what saved him. He doesn't say, I outwitted the king. He says, my God rescued me and saved me from his hand. Well, David realizes that it's too dangerous for him to stay among the Philistines. So he relocates him and his men to a place called Adullam and a cave there, right at the borderlands between Philistines and Israelites. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 to 2 says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Just two quick observations from Adullam. First is this. The community that David is building around him isn't exactly Israel's finest, okay? These are not, this is not the A-team. Basically, what unites them is not David's charisma or his leadership, but the fact that they're all misfits and outlaws. (laughs) Secondly is this. David's brothers join him, which is a bit surprising because if you remember in that story of David and Goliath, what his brothers really thought of him because they didn't think much of him. And so the question is, why would his brothers follow David? And it's most likely not so much because they respected David, but because their lives were threatened as well. And they had nowhere else to go but to follow him into the wilderness. From Adullam, David will travel east, all the way across to the other side of the Dead Sea, beyond Israel, to the land of Moab, on a special mission. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3 to 5, it says this, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herith. Here we see the heart of David, the son, the faithful son. And his parents are elderly, but he realizes Saul may very well choose to kill them as well. And so he brings them out of Israel into the land of Moab, east of the Dead Sea. And the question is, why Moab? Why Moab? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that David's great-grandmother was who? Ruth. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, right? She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabitess. So David has Moabite blood in him. 
And he seems to be tapping into that ethnic connection to ask the king of Moab for a favor and say, will you protect my parents while I'm on the run like this? So after setting his parents in Moab, setting them up there, under the direction of Prophet Gad, David and his men head back up toward Adullam to an area called the Forest of Hereth. Meanwhile, interestingly, while David is in Hereth, Saul throws this little pity party for himself, complaining that nobody is on his side. In 1 Samuel 22, verses 7 to 8, we find this recording of Saul. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me where my son makes a, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Do you just hear the tone of Saul? You hear the violins playing, right? No one cares about me. No one's on my team. So Doeg the Edomite, who was there at Nob, when David went to Ahimelech, and got Goliath's sword, and got the bread, here's what Saul is saying. And he says, Saul, I can help you. Because I saw David at Nob when he first ran away. And the priests helped him. So Saul summons Ahimelech and all the other priests of Nob to come to him. And when they arrive, he accuses them of conspiracy against them. And they adamantly deny, I had no idea that David was running from you. Why would I think such a thing? But then in verses 16 to 17, he records this. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. What you see here is the depth of darkness into which Saul's soul has plunged, demanding the slaughter of every priest of Israel there who wasn't on his team. It is such an egregious command that his own soldiers refused to carry it out. We're not going to do this. We're not going to kill these priests. So then it says in verse 18 to 19, then the king said to Doeg, he's he's not an Israelite, right? He's an Edomite. You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. So there's this mass slaughter that happens under the direction of Saul. One of the sons of Ahimelech, a guy named Abiathar, escapes the slaughter and makes his way to David to tell him everything that happens. And this is what's recorded in 1 Samuel 22, verse 22. And David said to Abiathar, 
I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have okay, and then this is what David says, I, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. What I want you to see in this chapter of David's story is the powerful contrast between King Saul and David. You could argue that Saul was going through his own wilderness experience because in essence, Saul's entire world is collapsing around him also. But Saul reacts to his wilderness experience like a wild animal that's been cornered. He is paranoid. He is terrified. And he lashes out at everyone around him. Saul, in his wilderness, is consumed with self-pity. And he attacks everyone around him for not supporting him, but supporting David. Because Saul has no faith in that wilderness. How different from David and his wilderness experience. Because David in the wilderness will draw closer to God and will have a deeper understanding of his own weakness and his need for grace. Look at that heart of David that says, I have done this. I have done this. I take the blame for what happened to those priests. What a different posture that David is learning to take in his life compared with Saul who is blaming everybody else out there for his problems. Out of that, I want to say this. We need wilderness experiences to grow. But simply going through wilderness experiences doesn't guarantee our growth. Do you understand that? That is the testimony of Saul. Despite everything that he went through, he didn't learn a thing from it. Instead, he just became more embittered, more jealous, more distrusting. And I'm going to say this. In our stubbornness and pride, we can also resist and refuse the lessons of the wilderness that God may want to teach us. Well, David hears that the Philistines are attacking the Israelites at a city called Keilah or Keilah. And so he and his men go to rescue the city of Keilah. But the problem is this. The battle has revealed his location to Saul. And so Saul gathers his army to attack David at Keilah. And as if David could not be any more demoralized in his wilderness experience, the very citizens of Keilah that he had rescued and saved from Philistines, God tells him, are going to be the very people who will hand you over to Saul and betray you. And so David flees to the region of Horish to flee from Saul. But even there, the people of Horish turn against David and tell Saul, David is here, come and get him. And so Saul gathers his armies and hunts down David at Horish 
In verses 26 to 29 of chapter 23, it says, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David on his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David his me, uh, and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. It's high drama, isn't it? Saul is coming down, bearing down on David, and now he's caught up to him. And now basically they're on opposite sides of a mountain. And it's basically like Saul is trying to circle the mountain to basically intercept David and his men. And it's basically like it's within hours it's going to be over for David. And right in the nick of time, he receives news, Saul receives news that the Philistines are attacking and he breaks away and David is saved. Now, we're going to get to En Gedi here and I'm going to wrap it up in just a minute here. I hope, though, that you're getting the picture of what David is dealing with here in his wilderness experience. Just basically hopping from one place to another, going to foreign countries even, trying to get away from Saul who's trying to kill him. And he has to hide away his elderly parents in a foreign country. And he's not even sure that he'll ever see them again. And in his company are just a bunch of disgruntled convicts and misfits who are with him because they just have nowhere else to go and don't know what else to do with their lives. And not only that, but now the very people that he loves and he rescues turn their backs on him and betray him and side with Saul. You've got to understand, this is what David is going through when we finally get to this last scene in En Gedi. So once Saul's army pulls away at Horish, David heads over to an area known as En Gedi. En Gedi is an oasis off the west bank of the Dead Sea. This oasis actually exists even to this very day, to the present day. In fact, you could go there and swim in the oasis at En Gedi right now if you want to. Water's super salty, but you could do it. <laughs> but just beyond the oasis of En Gedi is the region of En Gedi. And the landscape changes very dramatically from lush waters and vegetation to desert and cliffs with many caves hidden there and it is in these caves that David and his men were hiding when Saul gathers an army of 3,000 men to counter his 600 and went after David arriving in En Gedi though Saul needs to relieve himself he needs to use the bathroom and I think the implication is he has to go number two not number one okay well it doesn't really say it there but, you know, men can go number one very easily anywhere, right? You don't need a cave. Um, I don't know why I went into all that right now. All right. So, so Saul picks this cave in En Gedi to relieve himself without realizing that it's the exact same cave where David and his men are hiding deeper inside that cave. And so in chapter 24, verse 4, it says this, And the men of David said to him, 
Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They are celebrating. I picture this man going, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. And like, they're like whooping it up because like Saul has been handed to them on a silver plate. As far as David's men were concerned, it doesn't get more obvious than this, that this is the will of God. To go and just pick up a sword and kill the guy. And suddenly David is king overnight. But it's interesting that David didn't see it that way. In fact, he has to convince his men not to kill Saul. He says, don't lay a hand on him. Instead, what he does is he cuts part of Saul's robe off, which he must have thrown aside in order to relieve himself and go to the bathroom. So he cuts a corner of Saul's robe off, and even that act of insubordination just grips David with guilt. And in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 24, it says this, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And then this is the exchange that happens between David and Saul outside the cave. Afterward, David arose, also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. But I gave you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom, the, has, the, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge. And give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You see, I think one of the main lessons in the wilderness to learn is how to surrender control of our lives into the hands of God. Rather than trying to always engineer our own outcomes for the life of blessing that we want so desperately. And that was one of the most important lessons that David had to learn before he could become king. You got to realize what a vulnerable thing David did when he went out there to Saul because his armies could not have been that far away. He is outnumbered five to one by Saul's army and all of his soldiers 
are cornered in the dead end of a cave. If Saul wanted to, he could have massacred David and his men in that moment. But instead, he submits to Saul, an act of total submission and vulnerability. And what I find so interesting is this. David does display incredible humility, but he also displays in that humility an incredible confidence and certainty of his destiny. He knows he is going to be king one day because that is what God has promised him. And it is in that confidence that he can act in the way that he did. He says, I know my God who is with me. He is my avenger. He is my protector. He is my defender. And so I don't have to try to fight you, Saul. I don't have to duke this out with you. I will let God take care of you. But I will not lay a hand on you. In other words, the wilderness has retrained David's eyes to see that God is everywhere and is in control of everything. That is the ultimate lesson of the wilderness, is that we live in a world in which God is everywhere and in which he is in total control of everything. Listen to how Saul reacts to what David says, starting in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, this is just so honest and so poignant. He says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my, me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name, out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What I find so interesting about this exchange is that David assumes a posture of incredible weakness and vulnerability. But with that weakness comes this unbelievable power to affect his enemy and melt the heart of Saul. And I think this goes against every fiber of our instinctive being to act this way toward people who are against us. But this is the way of faith. This is the mystery of the wilderness, is that we must learn that lesson that so often God uses our very weakness to accomplish his will, to show his strength. And I think so often, especially when we're dealing with relationships, we feel this burden to try to manipulate people, to coerce them, to guilt them into the things that we want from them. But the way of faith shows us a whole different way of relating to people. That we come aside, alongside them in love and surrender and submission. And somehow in that posture of weakness, come sometimes God's greatest acts of power in the lives of the people around us.
The introduction to Psalm 57 says this. A mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And these are the words that David would pen coming out of that experience of the cave of Engedi. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David was learning the lessons of the wilderness. I started by talking about this guy, Chris um, McCandless. And there's so much controversy about this guy. A lot of people detest the fact that so much has been made about his life because they think he was an idiot, a fool. Why are we almost like exalting the life of this crazy guy that lived so stupidly? And there can be a fair debate about whether he lived a worthwhile life or not. But it's interesting to hear McCandless's own words about his two-year journey in the wilderness. And even when he realized he was never going to make it out of Denali alive, in that final journal entry in his diary, Chris McCandless wrote these words. To my family, do not grieve over my demise. Celebrate my existence. I have experienced more in the past two years than I ever did previously. I love each of you. I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. I think McCandless would say these two years were worth it even if I ended in my death. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we find these words. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, because of time, I can't really unpack this. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in the next message in two weeks. But what we're going to see is this, out of all of this wilderness story of David, is that it all points ahead to Christ in the wilderness who became the perfect representative for us in that place of wilderness on our behalf. 
Let's pray. We're going to, in just a moment here, come to the Lord's table. And uh, I think for the sake of time, we're, we're kind of, let's uh, forego the, the, the response song. And I just want to invite you to a, a, a moment of prayer right now as you come before the Lord and reflect on this message. I've been saying this throughout our series in David and truthfully, as long as I've occupied the pulpit here at ICC, I've been trying to say this message that these stories in the Bible are not given to us morality tales to try to give us somehow instructions on how you could live a good life, how you could be a good person. That's not the purpose of the Bible. What's so beautiful about Scripture is its honesty of showing how even these people that we sometimes want to uplift as heroes are actually so human like us. David with drool dripping down his beard acting like a crazy person because he's panicking and doesn't know how he's going to get out of there alive. Yet somewhere in his panic and desperation are these beautiful words that say, God, you are my refuge. I look to you for my salvation. And that's the real message of Scripture is we are going to go through wilderness experiences. And who can go through that? Well, it's beyond the means of any of us. Truthfully, if we're really honest, most of us, when we go through the wilderness, behave a lot more like Saul than we behave like David, right? We throw pity parties and we attack other people and we say, why me and why is this happening? But I I think the reason why we can embrace wilderness, even in our own lives, is because we follow a Savior who has gone to that wilderness ahead of us and for us. And so we don't go into that wilderness alone. We go with his presence, his strength that is greater than our strength. And so I don't know if right now you would describe your life as a wilderness or maybe truthfully things are going great in your life and everything is awesome. I don't know. But I do know that it's pretty hard to get through this life unscathed, being brought to places of wilderness. And in that wilderness, we need to learn what David learned. And that is simply this. With all of my sins and all of my weaknesses and all of my failures, what I have to do in that wilderness is to cling to Christ and Christ alone. That's why we're going to come to this table right now and receive his bread, this bread, and receive this cup.